You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 8th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The conflict and humanitarian crises worsen in Sudan. We'll examine why it's slipping from the headlines. Italy suggests the EU builds its own army. And why, were you to be a 19th century poet in New York City, you'd be run over. I'm Emma Nelson. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and the warmest of welcomes to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and my guests, Rebecca Tinsley and Ben Kelly, will discuss the day's big stories, including the growing discontent in Russia as the country's budget goes towards the war, leaving ordinary Russians freezing cold. So stay tuned. All that and more is coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. And the warmest of welcomes on this incredibly cold January day, here in London at least, to journalist and audience editor for Newsweek, Ben Kelly, and by Rebecca Tinsley, founder of Network for Africa. Hello, everybody. It's snowing outside. It is. (laughs) Flurries, they call it. Flurries, which is something that I've found quite delightful to watch. Not the snow, but the number of international people we have living in London now has meant that nine out of ten people on my street were getting their phones out or ringing friends to say, this is snow. We've never seen snow before. And actually, there was was a sort of childlike delight in it, whereas everybody who's seen it before, possibly not so pleased. It's always nice to see it, Um, but it is a little bit cold. We're thankfully warmer in here. Not much, though, because, Rebecca, you complained about being cold when you came in. Well, you you said you are inherently cold. I'm always cold. Um, But as someone who was born in Canada, I have to say, snow, you call this snow? Please, pathetic, pitiful. She's nails, is that one, isn't she? We call it snow, and we will shut things down. We will have delays. Oh, I We will have sick days. Any excuse. Any excuse. Anyway, how are we starting? Because this is January the 8th, and for many, this is the people who've enjoyed that lovely, long, fat holiday over the last few weeks and is now back to work in the snow with a bang um but you ben said that you had no you didn't there was no rest for the wicked for you over christmas time was there and so as a result are you feeling sort of particularly hardcore and perhaps a little less sympathetic to those who are sort of grabbing themselves out of bed this morning yeah i worked quite a few days over the holidays so um i kind of feel like i didn't really fall out of the work vibe um but yeah i sent an email to someone on the 28th i think that they answered today so that's someone who clearly uh has had their nice little break i've got no sympathy for them no 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 well i don't know maybe maybe (laughs) we're all just jealous how about you rebecca are you cracking the whip from 8am today uh yeah 6 30 actually but um time difference with africa so there we go um actually i had um a really nice end to 2023, which had been, and let's face it, a pretty ghastly year. Because, um, you know, I I depend on getting donations from very nice people who are prepared to support our work at Network for Africa. And um, I was raised um, never to ask for money because I was told that people who talked about money were common and vulgar and so it's i'm the world's worst fundraiser but so however, that's not really helpful for you is it exactly however but the really nice thing is that at the end of 2023 a whole lot of people um 
felt moved to give us donations. And was there um, any particular reason why they were giving it? Had something spurred them into giving to you this year? There is an American culture of giving at the end of the financial year. Um, but that doesn't explain um, why we were getting um, donations in the UK. And it, it does interest me because we are told repeatedly that the public in both the States and in Britain uh, are very cynical about humanitarian aid. And yet I think there's what, what it turns out they're cynical about the way it's wasted by governments who give mm. to other governments. But actually, once you've got a track record of having proved that you do achieve things in your own admittedly small way, you build up a level of trust. And I think people have felt felt that 2023 was such a ghastly year that they wanted to do something that they knew might make a difference, briefly, again, Rebecca, in a small just, way. Briefly, just remind us what Network for Africa does. Um, we uh, work in countries in Africa where there's been genocide and we provide um, psychotherapy support to people who survive genocide. Which perhaps is probably a very good reason why we have you today when we're talking about what's happening in Sudan, um, because... There is no sign of the civil war in Sudan ending, and that is our first um, topic today. The, the country's army chief, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, has vowed to continue a nine-month-long conflict between his military and the paramilitary opposition rapid support forces. Ceasefires have been promised and greeted with scepticism. Um, Rebecca, just for those of us who just need a little bit of a, a, a recap, what exactly is happening in Sudan? Because this dates back to April last year when conflict broke out and no one seems to want to finish it. Yeah, it actually it actually dates back um, decades, if not centuries. Um, but first of all, I want to thank Monocle Radio for being one of the few media to consistently report on Sudan. Um, there is an incredible news vacuum on this subject. And what's staggering is that more people are being killed in Sudan right now than are dying in Gaza. But um, there Could you is... qualify that a little? Yeah, just, sure. Uh, as to just the intensity? Because sure. Gaza is a, is a place of high intensity of casualties at the moment. Exactly. Um, but, you know, arguably Darfur is as well. Um, you know, there, there are nine million people in Darfur. And we know that in one town alone, we are, we are being told that maybe 10,000 people were killed recently. Um, it, but again, there's no media there. There's nobody filming the atrocities. Um, all the, the casualty figures, figures we have are basically for the capital, Khartoum, um, and people living along the Nile, who happen to be Arab. But unfortunately, and this is the background to this, uh, when you look at the black African Sudanese, nobody is keeping count and nobody has ever kept count. Um, you know, you asked for, you know, in a nutshell, what's happening. You've got two militia leaders, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces, who are actually the Janjaweed who committed the genocide in Darfur 20 years ago. Both of these two men want to run Sudan. At stake um, is a, an enormous web of commercial entities and gold and um, oil. That's what this is about. There's, it's actually nothing ideology, ideological about it because, one, they're both Islamists, so if either of them win, you get an Islamic fundamentalist government. Two, they're both very, very cosy with Russia. So if either of them win, Russia will have a port on the Red Sea. And imagine 
the, the chaos that they could, uh, you know, sow. And, of course, the third thing is that if either of these guys win, there will be waves of migration. Um, so the international community should care an awful lot more about Sudan than it does. It's been ignoring this. Of course, one of the reasons we ignore it is that our clients in the Gulf are supporting both sides and are sending in, I mean, uh, plane loads of weapons, actually landing plane loads of weapons into Sudan. We don't say a word because either we're laundering their money or we're selling them weapons. Ben, tell us a little bit more about how... Um, as Rebecca has just mentioned, the fact that it is not be, it is not being covered to the extent that perhaps it was, and indeed it should be. I remember at the start of the conflict, there was this great flurry of international news outlets saying, there are 30 Brits trapped in Sudan, there are 100 French people. There, there is always that making the story relevant to the audience. It is something which is absolutely crucial to any journalistic capability. You cannot hit home unless you get the heart rate of the, your your reader or your listener going pitter-pat. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Um, with stories like this, and I think back to other things, whether it's Afghanistan or other international events, um, when they involve people from our countries, I say our, I mean, you know, Western countries, the UK, the US, etc., people have an interest and they give it that sort of the attention. Um, but it's a very sort of self-reflecting kind of attention. They're not maybe versed in what's going on. Uh, and it can be very difficult to, um, as you mentioned, Rebecca, to give, you know, when you haven't got people on the ground to tell that story back to you, it can be very difficult. If you compare it, for example, to Ukraine and to Israel, um, you know, those are so well covered because they're places where we know and people report from. And also they're very much social media wars. People are sharing the content and beaming it out to us. When there's that sort of vacuum, it's very hard to get into it and to get it back out. But it also goes to that sense of sort of supply and demand in news. If people aren't then aware of it, they're not looking for it. You know, I was comparing this before we came on, um, the search for Sudan and comparing it to Israel and Ukraine. And it won't surprise you to know that it's it's very, very flat compared to the other two conflicts. And of course, with those other two conflicts, Ukraine and, and Israel, um, the interest also fades over time because we have war fatigue, news fatigue. People, you know, feel like there's a lot of sad news out there and they don't want to go looking for more. So what's in it for me, with me? Why is this Why is this relevant to my story? But how does that, what kind of knock-on effect, Rebecca, does that have on other nations' responses? Not news outlets, but, you know, the United States, the European Union. If Sudan is not in the headlines, does it slip from consciousness and, and, and efforts are depleted? Oh, yeah, ab abso absolutely. Um you know, but I have to I have to say, and and it's mad, it's madness because, as I say, there will be a huge wave of migration. At which point, the European Union will freak out mm. because it really won't be prepared to deal with this. But there is something that I should mention. First of all, I know this sounds disgusting, but Hamas has been really good at PR, and you know they're good at providing um, a body count daily. Uh, and they're good at providing stories for the media of atrocities, whereas none of this is happening in Sudan. There's no, mer mer in, no media, nobody's keeping count. There's another factor here, and yeah, we're, you, you know, you mentioned, Emma, what's America going to do? What's the European Union? How about the Arab world? How about the Muslim world? Silence from these people. And the horrible truth is that a Sudanese Muslim is the wrong kind of Muslim because they are black. And you think back to the invasion of Kuwait, 
you know, suddenly we had an international collector, you know, all the allies got together to liberate Kuwait. They were the right kind of Arab, the right kind of Muslim. There is, I know it's horrible to say it, but there is a hierarchy and the Gulf Arabs and Muslims are right at the top and right at the bottom are black Africans. And this is an Arab and a Muslim problem. They actually refer to the black people in Sudan as Abid, which means slave. And they say that to their faces. And they point to the bit of the Quran that says that Allah created black people to be the slave of the Arab. And that informs the, the whole view of, of this horrible humanitarian disaster that's happening in Sudan. Let's talk about hierarchies in, another, in the context of another story. Uh, we've already mentioned the fact that the Israel-Hamas war is absolutely dominating the headlines for very, very good reason. Then we have the Ukrainian conflict doing... You, you just see these incredibly strong efforts being made by both the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and also Ukrainian voices coming out of Ukraine saying, we must keep this in the public consciousness. One thing you don't have, though, if you're in Russia, is that ability to do that at the moment. And there, there are reports nonetheless, and indeed people have started to protest because temperatures are hitting minus 30 there. And this is where we're going to turn our attention to now. Temperatures are hitting minus 30. People are saying that their homes are minus 10 measurements on the thermometer. And yet the the effort that is being made publicly, internationally and domestically is we must put all our efforts into the operation in Ukraine. It's a dreadful situation, isn't it, Ben? Yeah, this story sort of spiked through uh, the, over the weekend. Um, this region in south of, of Moscow where some 20,000 people are completely without heat, electricity, etc. Um, and the people were protesting against their, their local government um, and the local government kind of came back after something like seven days of silence and sort of said, well, you know, yes, it's also the, the, the public owners and this, that and the other. Um, and there was a video that went viral of um, some local people protesting, mostly women, I must say. Um, and the police were sort of called in on them. And, and the woman in the video says, you know, if only they'd come to fix the heat as quickly as they sent the police. Um but yeah, um, people are obviously going to be questioning in Russia how much money is being spent on a war that's, you know, seemingly not progressing, just in the way that people in the West are in some places questioning, you know, what we're giving to, to Ukraine. Um, just before Christmas, we saw Putin actually being quizzed to his face in that annual press conference about the, the price of eggs and chicken and other things that people were sort of saying, you know, their cost of living is very difficult. I think I saw earlier their inflation rate is 7.5%. Um, so people are really struggling. And of course, they're coming up to an election year. We're in an election year. Um, so, yeah, those are all sort of things on his plate. One always has to wonder how much an election year actually matters in Russia when you have Vladimir Putin in the, in, in the Kremlin. But Rebecca, there's that idea, isn't there, of, the, of, of, of a Russian identity, a Russian preservation of the motherland and the genuine commitment that... Or, or, Commitment that every Russian citizen must owe to its to its nation, which almost sometimes sort of supersedes 
common sense in so many ways. Well, well, perhaps it wouldn't go down so well in other countries. But is this is this an, an example of that? There is an expectation that Russians will just commit to whatever their leader wishes them to, to commit to. I think we're ignoring um, the element of fear involved in this because this is a country where you can get sent to jail for 15 years for calling the war a war. And I think I really do feel that uh, we're back to Stalinist times and an awful lot of people may want to complain and goodness knows they've got grounds to complain, but, you know, they, they will be really scared of the consequences for that. But, you know, Emma, you're absolutely right to look back, um, you know, to the, the Second World War, where the siege of Leningrad uh, brought out an amazing um, toughness um, among people. And, and you know, if you, if you think of the loss throughout the Second World War, nobody really knows the figures. 20 million, 40 million Russians, Soviets, I should say, Soviet citizens, uh, you know, and and the Soviet, uh, Putin is very aware, isn't he, of of that messaging that was used by Stalin um, throughout the Second World War, and he's, he's using it again right now. At what point do you think there would be some sort of breaking point? Because I think it's a good decade plus now since there are any kinds of middle-class protests in, in, in Moscow who are always the ones who are sort of they're the ones that, that Putin always appeases because if you can get the middle class to vote for you, then everything is fine. One gets the impression here that these are people who simply don't count. Well, we saw some glimmerings of that at the beginning of the, the Ukraine war, didn't we? Especially around the conscription when it was brought in and we saw sort of young men fleeing and so on. And you, you do often see quite a lot of yeah women and you know wives and mothers um, being the most vocal in, in protesting about their, their sons or their husbands or the treatment that they're getting. But yeah, it, it's very hard to determine what's going to, if anything, uh, break the camel's back. I do think if people are cold, hungry or they can't afford things, those are the things that do push certain people to to change. And it's a major con- contrast. If you sort of go over the road to Estonia or to Finland, people are dealing with the nominally low temperatures, but everything is so much more cosy. It is, it's such a tale of two, two worlds, isn't it? But isn't that the cleverness of Navalny to highlight uh, the excessive wealth and the luxurious lifestyles of Putin and the oligarchs. The fact that, you know, that video he made about Putin's palace mm-hmm. on the Black Sea, it's, you know, what a brilliant piece of propaganda that was. Um, I mean, and he's right. That's the way to get at these people, to show the sheer hypocrisy of Putin, you know, who will be asking the nation to rally around Mother Russia while at the same time, you know, he lives in excessive luxury. Let's move on to rallying around of a different kind. Uh, we're going to talk about a European army now. It's not the first time people have talked about the idea of a European army. Not a new one. First discussed as far back as 1950 among six European nations, Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and West Germany. The aim then, guess what, to strengthen defences against the Soviets without allowing West Germany to be dragged into any kind of conflict. 70 years plus on and although the political shape of Europe is different. The concern is still the same, the threat of modern-day Russia. And now Italy's Foreign Minister Antonio Tajani or Tajani, has suggested that the European Union should form its own combined army that could play a role in peacekeeping and preventing conflict. I must confess, Ben, when I read this, I just thought, how many times have we talked about this? Yeah, it seems to come around earlier every year, doesn't it? Yes. This is, uh, <laughs> it's like Christmas, the yeah. 8th of January. Here it is. Here's a call for a European army. Yeah, and Look, I suppose 
are there new contexts in which to discuss this? Yes, there probably are. I mean, obviously, you know, the Russia invasion of Ukraine gave us food for thought in terms of European security. We saw the responses from Finland and Sweden and other people, uh, you know, where I come from in Ireland, you know, much more live debate happening about NATO membership and so forth. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the debate within the United States, particularly some sort of protectionist Republicans who are getting a little bit tired of aiding Ukraine and what that signals is they'd be a little bit tired of helping out you know the Baltics or whoever it might be that comes under Russia's um, ire next and I think that does uh, it should make Europeans think you know can we rely on the might of America as the senior partner in, in NATO or should we be taking things into our own hands? Well, come on, reality check. <laughs> reality check here. Um, Europe was tested at the time of the Bosnian War, and it was incapable of coming up with a unified foreign policy. You can have an army, but if you don't have a unified foreign policy, it's just, it's just a waste of time. Europe was appalling on Bosnia. It was just a disgrace. Um, and as long as you have a system within the European Union where you have to have unanimous voting on everything, you will never get a unanimous view. So the Europeans will always fudge on any any issue like you know that matters. There's a point here, isn't there? Because when the Ukraine invasion took place, different countries had different decisions on how they would approach a Russian invasion. Also, when we looked at the pandemic, it was a mess among the European Union and countries suddenly became incredibly protectionist because when you are under threat, you shut doors. And one wonders who is going to come up with, you know, he's going to be the general, he's going to the minister, he's going to be the minister of defence. Is it going to be a hawkish French individual? If it, is it going to be the Italian foreign minister, Antonio Tajani? He's probably angling for a new job. Um, is it going to be a Swede who's saying, well, hang on a minute, we're knocking on NATO's doors? There are too many cooks here, surely, to, to create yeah. some sort of united military force. And who's going to choose who does those jobs? I want to know who's doing the uniform, though. I mean, that's going to be a big enough problem because the Italians will want to make it. The Germans will, will probably will not want to have anything to do with any kind of uniform. But it's that whole idea of like who's in charge of the epaulets. Yeah, I'm distracted now thinking about the beautiful designs for the the, uh, the outfits, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I suppose, if anything, it, it, what is constantly needed to be considered is what's going on with, with Europe's security and defence. And it maybe the EU army is not the way to answer that, but I think the topic needs to remain on the table somehow. How does it remain on the table, Rebecca, given the fact that, you know, as, as we have within the space of two hot minutes decided that it is, it is a terrible idea, but the need for something like that still remains because NATO has been seen not necessarily lacking, but pushed beyond its natural abilities. And then when you have the issue of Sweden trying to get membership of NATO, that has been a huge problem because there's another member state, well, it's not Turkey, but Hungary has objected to it. But also, there, I wonder whether the creation of a European army is to replace the, the absence of a strong enough United States force or, or NATO. I, I think that we... <sighs> There are more useful things we could do as Europeans, for instance, striving for energy independence and technology independence, resilience, um, as uh, van der Leyen calls it. I think she's onto something there. That would be more meaningful because then we could actually be more more united uh, if we weren't splintering because of, of self-interest on, you know, where do we get our gas from? Where do we get our mi microchips from? We are really vulnerable with things like undersea cables, uh, you know, and we're 
you know, and cyber attacks. And we're really not doing enough on this kind of thing. Regarding NATO, of course, uh, NATO is held hostage by Turkey. And at some stage, somebody somewhere has to get the courage to call the bluff of Erdogan, who is just a bully, and, and ask him, you know, <laughs> does he really want to be in bed with the Russians? He should know, he should know not. You're listening to The Monocle Daily with me, Emma Nelson. Joining me in the studio is a journalist and audience editor for Newsweek, Ben Kelly, and by Rebecca Tinsley, founder of Network for Africa. Now, finally, either of you to a flaneur? I think I am. Right. Well, I've a... only learned the word today. Okay, fine. But you saw a book on it today I, I, in, I did, in, yeah. in, in Daunt Books in London. So you're now the world's leading expert, having picked up a book with the word flaneur on the outside of it. For those of us who do not know what a flaneur is, could you possibly try and describe it? Well, from what I've gathered, someone who likes to walk around cities and yeah. sort of take in the atmosphere and the vibe and the aesthetics and um, just give themselves over to the... Uh, yeah, the place. It is. It's, it's flat. I don't know what the flanny in French. I'm not quite sure what how you translate it directly into English. Is to flan. Um, it's one of those amazingly, wonderfully Parisian ideas, isn't it? I think it was the the French poet Charles Baudelaire who said that um, the urban dweller is a kaleidoscope gifted with consciousness. I think Ben's raised a really important issue here: is that you don't just go for a walk when you are flanning you are actively engaged with your environment but in a very sort of relaxed french way it's quite specific isn't it the reason why i'm mentioning this is that there's an excellent excellent article in the new york times which suggests that were Charles baudelaire going for a walk flanning a flanel today he'd simply be run over I think, I think you have to be a sponge. You have to treat yourself as a sponge taking in all the, the sights and sounds around you, and that means not wearing headphones, uh, for instance, and also not looking at um, street level. I, I am a flaneur, flaneur um, and something I learned a long time ago was to look up as I wandered around rather, at, rather than at the crud. I mean, if you take Oxford Street, there's this garbage at street level. But if you raise your eyes, there are some really superb buildings. The same with Piccadilly, actually. But I've lived in this city since 1978, and I am still thrilled that I, I discover new corners of it when I do just go for an aimless wander and open myself to the beauty and craziness that is London. Are I you saying it. you don't enjoy the American candy stores on Oxford Street that sort of paved that, that, that side with all the lovely tops on them? Different kind of flan, <laughs> I think. I assume they're money laundering. I think everyone assumes that. Yeah. But yeah. We'll never know. We'll it, ask it, Westminster Council when we next ring them. Uh, there is that idea, though, that... that I love the idea of Rebecca then going for a walk without purpose. You walk for the you walk for the purpose of walking itself. Uh, one of the, the the point of this article in the New York Times, Ben, is that um, were Charles Baudelaire to be going for a walk nowadays, not only would he be, if we're in London, to be over, overwhelmed by American candy stores, he might well get run over because the the author of the the article said that they were nearly hit by goodness knows how many bits and bobs of of, of street you know, p bikes, cars, buses, lorries, that it is impossible now to absorb the pleasures of a city because they're just too, because the city itself is just too frantic. Yeah, I suppose it depends where you're going to go. I think Paris is always a place where you're going to wander around and take in light and shade, busyness, quietness. I find London is a very busy place to walk around. Um, last year I went 
uh, to Milan for the first time. I had a beautiful walk around there and that was very much a look up and see all the different beautiful buildings and so on. Um, but it's not just about exploring, it is about being inspired. The, the pull-out quote in this article I'm looking at here says, a city that no longer accommodates wandering, no longer accommodates wandering. That's quite a nice thought, really. It's the wandering, wandering thing. Yeah. Um, that's mentioned in this article, isn't it, um, Rebecca? The, the, they, there's a quotation of Nietzsche that's saying that only ideas won by walking have any value. You must have some brilliant ideas as a walker, but there is that marvellous space that is created with a walk. I know that during the pandemic, we all had plenty of wonderful wanderings because we would all we could do was walk. Absolutely. I, I must admit, though, I, first of all, I, you're flattering me by thinking I have good ideas, or I really don't. Um, and I think the whole point is to empty your mind. For me, it's a kind of mobile yoga, because um, I haven't got the discipline to do yoga. It's so boring. But I sometimes set myself a little kind of agenda. Like, for instance, wandering around London, I will try and look for Hawksmoor churches, which gives you a nice little theme, or Art Deco, or interesting tube stations. So there's a little bit of a theme there. Does that unpick the purpose of a flanel, which is to... Ah, uh, but then you discover help. other things while you're at ah. it, you see. I think, you know, you may, you think, you know, it's like the old Rolling Stone song, you know, you can't always have what you want, but sometimes you get what you need. Do you think New York is actually built for a flanner? I, I would, you know, we, we mentioned the idea of Paris being ultimately flannable. You know, you can go from left, you know, from west to, to, to east yeah. in the space of two or three hours and you can really feel as if you have traversed different parts and different identities within the same city. You can a little bit in London, but it's a much more densely built and noisily and, and, and what have you. But I just wonder whether this poor writer, who, who did say that 15 years ago they were able to do so, and it was, it was integral to the ability of a writer to create, was to, to walk, and, and this is now being sucked away. Yeah, I don't think New York has quite the, the same, that same sense. I think it's, it's much too busy, much too built up. I think everyone's going around with too much purpose, you know, compare that to Paris where it's a little bit more laid back. Um, maybe it's not an American thing, controversial. If not in London, where would you... Oh, Paris. Where's a good place? Where's an unexpected location to be a flaneur then? I'll ask the same question of you in a moment, Rebecca. When you just think, I can't wait to get to this place because I can go for a good walk. Oh, goodness me. Well, I quite like the Swedish capital, Stockholm. I like to walk around there. I like to walk around water. I like to walk around, um, yeah, some old buildings, then a little bit of new, um, just quiet streets, clean streets, um, somewhere that's got a little bit of history, a little bit of, um, yeah. Zurich's not bad for that, actually, because you can actually go up a mountain, come back round and go around the lake and be in the middle of the city in, in like, one afternoon, which is pretty, pretty yeah. good. How about you? I was going to say, you know, your previous point about, you know, London being too noisy and, and maybe all the same. But I'm not sure that's true. In my neighbourhood, you can go from Holland Park Road, where, you know, people like Madonna and Richard Branson live, and within 10 minutes... You are in one of the poorest wards in London, where, of course, we had Grenfell Tower. So you know, there is variety there, uh, and we're all packed in together. But as to my favourite places to wander, I think Tokyo is endlessly fascinating, and you just encounter loads of neat stuff. Istanbul, fabulous for a, 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 mean, you know, a, a meander, and also Mexico City. Um, again, different neighbourhoods, different things going on. Stop, 
have a cup of coffee, you know, just soak it up. And it's it's so enjoyable. Next time you see Rebecca, everybody, grab her for a walk. She knows what she's talking about. Sit down with a coffee or a drink. <laughs> it does. Or a sit, sit down somewhere. Yeah. A reward, <laughs> at least. Thank you both for that. Let's finish the show today in Singapore, where a first-of-its-kind exhibition at the National Gallery has brought together works by the Southeast Asian and Latin American artists, including Frida Kahlo and the Philippines' David Medalla. Tropical charts the 20th century, a period of political upheaval as European empires retreated. Well, these changes inspired creatives to produce art in their own image and to move away from colonial depictions of their communities and lifestyles. Monocle's Lillian Fawcett visited the exhibition and spoke to its curator to find out more. We are standing by one of the largest exhibits in Tropical, which is Tropicalia by Elia Oitisika. Talk me through the staging process of this. I mean, there are many different components to it. There are wooden structures, there's gravel, there's sand, lots of plants. There are even some birds, which we might pick up on the recording as well. It is a very impressive installation and it's one that really brings together all the elements that you just listed, which were really uh, Oitesika's way of gathering some of the stereotypes and tropes about the tropics, but presenting them in, as we see, quite a manicured fashion. So there's a gravel path which leads us through the space, which is uh, interactive, so visitors can also walk on the path and on the sand and explore different parts of the installation. So it's a work that was really presented in 1967 in Rio de Janeiro and kind of recreating it here for our exhibition was a long and laborious but also very rewarding process. We work directly with the artist's estate, uh, Progetto Elio Oitesica, which is currently run by his nephew, Cesar Oitesica. And Cesar joined us here in Singapore for about a week and a half. You can hear the birds there. We put the work, kind of assembled it together uh, with a whole team of contractors and staff, putting the sand down, uh, putting the gravel down, getting the birds settled in as well uh, was a very fun process. My name is Teo Hui Min and I'm a curator here at the National Gallery. And what are some of the big shared themes between Latin American and Southeast Asian artworks, especially in the 20th century, because that's kind of the main focus of the uh, tropical exhibition? For our exhibition, we were really kind of tracing the connections across these two really incredible regions, looking at uh, kind of shared stories of solidarity. You know, firstly, they come through kind of a shared experience of colonialism, how artists were also working through that experience, but also the experience of modern art as well. And of course, uh, sometimes those solidarities uh, were very real, so many artists did meet, but sometimes they were felt. And what I mean by that is kind of a shared thought space, you know, where not just images of art are circulated, but also you know, writing, poetry, and manifestos as well. And one of the themes you explore is this kind of myth of the lazy native that comes up a lot in the artwork. It's kind of pushing back against these very idealised, in some ways, colonial depictions of Southeast Asia and Latin America. Can you talk a bit more about that? 
Yeah, it's quite a provocative term and we didn't come up with it ourselves. It really borrows from a, a seminal text written in 1977 by the sociologist Said Hussein Alatas uh, right here in Singapore. Uh, actually, he wrote that text. And in that kind of very powerful statement, he was really unpacking how stereotypical images uh, of the colonial subject were really very deliberately constructed under the auspice of colonial rule, uh, many times to justify why colonial rule was kind of, in fact, needed uh, in the region. And tracing that back to the story of art, uh, we realized that there was a parallel interest within the story of art to also kind of perpetuate uh, certain depictions of the colonized subject as sort of happy, peaceful workers, you know, working in these very idealistic, often very pastoral, kind of serene scenes uh, of the landscape. So what we realized was that, you know, by the early 20th century, many of the artists really spoke against this external view, uh, choosing instead to look around them to paint themselves, their mothers, their wives, freedom fighters, fellow artists, laborers, workers, really going to the root of experience and using that as a pathway of resistance as well. So we're standing in front of one of my favorite paintings in the exhibition. It's a work by the Brazilian artist Tassila do Amaral. It's dated to 1925 and the title is The Fruit Seller. And it really shows us a very stereotypical image of the tropics, a fruit seller with all kinds of tropical fruits in his basket. He has oranges, he has mangoes, he has a pineapple which is somehow spineless. And that's because the artist has chosen to paint a picture in very smooth kind of lines and using very clear blocks of primary colour. And uh, what's interesting about this work is not just how Tassila has brought together these tropes of paradise, you know, endless sea, uh, tropical beaches, palm trees, fruits. It's actually the expression uh, of the fruit seller because he doesn't look peaceful, nor does he look happy. And he's gazing at us with these sort of half-lidded, rather cynical looking uh, eyes uh, as he looks out at us uh, and in a way challenging us to really consider the individual experience that he has. And I'm really interested as well in how you planned other parts of the exhibition. I noticed that many of the paintings are hung with a panel behind them saying who the artist is and what the painting's called and a little bit about the background of it rather than next to the painting which is maybe more common was that a deliberate planning decision there are so many aspects of tropical you know from architecture to design you know and what we're looking at here in the visual arts and we wanted to find a way to incorporate uh, some of those physical aspects of tropical thinking into the exhibition and really design and architecture uh, was a key part so the interesting structures that are on display in the exhibition and are used to display the artworks actually come from an Italian-Brazilian architect whose name is Lina Bobadi. And she first debuted these incredible crystal easels at the Museum of Modern Art in Sao Paulo uh, as early as the late 1960s. And she had a very unique and very inspiring philosophy, which was a resolute stubbornness to decide you know, not to hang paintings on the white wall 
which she uh, very astutely reminded us were not neutral. And as you rightly point out, you know, I'm very guilty of this as well. You know, we tend to look at the description of the artwork first uh, before looking at the artwork itself. And she really wanted to reinvigorate that experience of looking, you know, to look at a work of art before reading it. So it's not just the information about the artwork which is on the back that is revealed you know, through the glass easel, uh, it's also the frame, the stretcher, the exhibition labels, you know, really reminding us that the work of art and specifically painting isn't just a two-dimensional image, but it's a work of labour uh, as well. That was Chiu Hui Min there talking to Lillian Fawcett. Uh, she's the curator at the National Gallery Singapore. Tropical is on there until the 24th of March. And that's all the time we have for today's edition of the Monocle Daily. The warmest of thanks to my panellists today, Ben Kelly and Rebecca Tinsley, and to the producer, Isabella Jewell, and researcher, Noma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard, with editing assistance from Sarah Nichol. I'm Emma Nelson here in London. The Monocle Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.